When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Hi, welcome to Hertel. Uh, let's talk about priorities right quick. Have a little bit of a grown folk talk here. Priorities are very apparent. See, that's one of those things where actions, not words, come into play. When stuff's going on, especially in a crisis, you watch how people behave, you watch how they perform, you watch how they go about their business, you can tell whether they were prepared or not. Even if something's thrust upon them, you can tell if they're at least mentally prepared or conditioned to handle the crisis, even if they have to adapt to the nuances and challenges that fall before them. This came to mind a week or two ago during the hurricane. The remnants came through. We lost power, had a tree come down the yard. Uh, so I went out after the power company confirmed it was going to be about a day before we had power, fired up the old generator so we could run the fridge and get some power to the house and so on and so forth. And after I fired the generator up, I went down to the gas station and get a couple gallons of gas, figuring I'd have to run it on and off during the night. By the time I came back, the one extension cord off of the power generator was already plugged into the fridge and into my daughter's base amp, who decided this was a good time, and her priority was to lay down some grooves. And God bless her, that's fun enough in the dark during a storm. She wanted to play a little bass, but it got me thinking, boy, that's how some of our politicians have been acting. Their job is not to just tickle our ears during election season. It's to prepare. It's to handle the business at hand. It's to learn from the things that happened before and have us all ready for what comes ahead. Now, sometimes you can't control everything. Like, War in Ukraine when Vladimir Putin and madmen of the world just invade and rape and pillage and destroy things. But you know, some madman somewhere is going to do that sometime. So we should be prepared. Don't always know when gas prices are going to go through the roof or the economy is going to go bad or an epidemic falls upon us from a pandemic and a disease. But we know it's going to happen sometime because it's happened all throughout human history. Were we prepared? Were we not prepared? How did people react in the crisis? We know that elections come every two years in this country, midterms, uh, the presidency every four years, senators every six years, which means a third of them are up at any two-year period. Are you prepared for that? Or do they just go about their business and then all of a sudden want to run for office at the last minute without having ever done their jobs? Same thing in your personal life, same thing in your business life, same thing in your kids' schools, same thing in your municipalities and local government. This is a universal theme. 
maybe instead of getting folks that tickle our ears and getting people to just fight the right people or fight the right battles or make it look like they're staying busy with activity when they're not really accomplishing anything, we should pay attention to their priorities. And we know their priorities by their actions and whether they accomplish anything. Just look at any of these crises. Just pick one of them. Take the COVID crisis. Was the regulations that we had on the books really what we needed? Because we sure did suspend a whole lot of them when we didn't need them. What did we learn about our education system through that? What did we learn about the legal system through that? What did we learn about our own rights through that? What did we learn about how our government officials do things? One thing we've learned, we've talked about extensively on this program, is that government officials do not know how to communicate with the regular folks. Scientists don't know how to communicate with the regular folks. And government scientists really, really don't know how to communicate with the regular folks. That's something we should have been prepared for. How do you talk in plain language to get the message across so there's less ambiguity and less room for the cranks and conspiracy theorists? So even when they were giving good information, people were distrustful because of the method it was delivered in. Preparation. There's going to be more storms. There's always going to be another blackout, and I'm still going to have to pull out the generator to generate some power. That's why we have it. I'm prepared so I can take care of my family and still have food in the fridge to provide for them, have a little bit of power, heat and air if needed, although it was a pleasant enough night with the wind going, we didn't need that. My daughter doesn't have to worry about that. She can just plug in her base amp and just riff away, not worrying about amperage or gas or anything else involved in it. She's just having fun, and we all had a good laugh at it. But when my government does that, and your government does that, we got a problem. Power goes out isn't the time to party. It isn't the time to lay down some smooth jazz grooves or some rocking lines. It's time to figure out what to do about it. And once we figure out what to do about it, we should be judging those folks on whether they were prepared in the first place and how they reacted to the crisis. The crisis in Ukraine right now, we should be judging our government leaders by it. The crisis in the environment, we should be judging our leaders by it. The crisis in the economy, the crisis in fuel prices, the crisis in education, the crisis in the workforce, all of these things we should not just be reacting to. We should be judging our leadership and our elected officials. And if they are found wanting, we should do something about getting some new ones. We do too much rhetoric, too much talk. Preparedness always shows in people's actions. We have to show it in our actions by paying attention to it and holding them accountable. You want a better world? Start with having better homes, better communities, better states, so on and so forth, and it radiates out. Start with being prepared. Start with properly discerning how you handled a crisis so you're better prepared for the next one. And people that can't handle it should have no business in power, no matter how much they can tickle your ears the rest of the time. More hotel right after this. Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16 ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% lean ground sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Okay, you probably heard tell or more specifically seen these robots, these little viral videos that go out of these robots doing things and backflips and bipedal. And then we have Skynet jokes and we talk about Terminator and we talk about all these sorts of things. Folks, let's just turn down the noise on the newest one. Uh, we're going to borrow this one from CNN Business, but it's all over the Internet. This half human looking thing, it basically looks like a pair of legs with some stuff on top of it. And it's running on a track. And it looks like a pair of legs running, and they're like, it ran the fastest 100 meters of a robot. It's called Cassie, you know, Chassie, get it? Uh, it's an agility robot. It was built by Oregon State University. It's very impressive. But I want to let you listen to some of the terminology here. It's like, Cassie, these are quotes, no cameras or external sensors. That's not true, by the way. They only do it by machine learning. Engineers trained Cassie, trained a simulation environment prior to putting it on the track. Quote, Cassie's first optimized running gait resulted in behavior that was strikingly similar to human biometrics. <sighs> Agility robots said the possible applications are things like delivering packages or in a disaster scenario. Okay, folks, listen to the terminology. The robots did not train for anything. They did not learn anything. Robots are still just computers. They are programmed. It has a human gait because it was programmed to have a human gait by... Humans, most of these videos are not the future. They're the trailer for a movie that has not been made yet. You know, you watch a trailer and you go, oh, that's really cool. And then it may or may not be representative of the movie. Well, these are trailers for a future with these robotics that doesn't exist yet. And they're mostly there to get you stoked up, number one. But mostly, and more importantly, and the part that we need to turn the noise down on and for you to understand these are for investment reasons. They want to sell these ideas. They want to get investors. They want to spend money, research and development, make big companies, make big money. But it's a future that's way far peace off. So don't freak out over the robots. There's no point to it because they're not real yet. Oh, I know you can see them. I know they're real there. But remember, those videos are edited. In fact, Boston Dynamic at least finally started releasing the blooper reels of how many takes it takes to get those viral ones where they do all the amazing things. There's battery concerns, there's sensory concerns, something like this. They're talking about disaster recovery or delivering packages. Uh, one of my tests with these robots and AI thing is, does it pass the area utes test? Oh, you remember that, my cousin Vinny, the area utes that destroy things. Would a gang of four or five area utes with ball bats be able to stop this thing? Because if it is, it's not really autonomous. You're going to have to babysit it because some area ute going to walk by, take one look at it, kick it sideways, knock it over, and then you're done. So until it passes that test, I'm not going to panic. Your mileage may vary. You can apply your own standard. That's just mine. Quit freaking out over the robots. It's a trailer for a movie that's not made yet. More specifically, it's made for people that aren't you to spend a lot of money on it to try to develop it even further. It's cool. It's going to happen one of these days. But we ain't there yet. And in this particular case, no, the Internet really isn't real life. More hotel right after this. Uh, welcome back to Hurtel. Okay, one of our favorites, good friend of the program, Sharp 
always brings a great point of view. Gabriella Hoffman has returned to her telling, boy, howdy, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. We're going to talk to her about everything from Vladimir Putin to cheating at fishing. Seriously, Gabby, so great to have you back. How have you been? I've been good. Busy, as you know. I know that's a typical answer I give, but I have been busy but productive and can't complain. Now I get to take a break from travel and get to focus more so on doing commentary and whatnot. But yes, a lot to unpack with you stemming across a whole wide swath of issue areas. Let's start with Russia. Vladimir Putin, who is celebrating a birthday, or as I call it, one year closer to God straightening him out. Um, <laughs> seriously, though, I, I want to change how we view this for a second, because obviously the war in Ukraine, that's a black and white thing to anybody yes. that's a functional adult. He invaded another country. We talk about the bad stuff. I want to highlight this a little differently, because if you look at the countries that are really bearing the burden on this thing, the Polands, the Baltic states, Latvia, Estonia, Lithuania, they're not just bearing the burden. These are success stories for what happened with countries that got away from the influence of first the old Soviet Union and Vladimir Putin. He's been leaning on all these countries the entire time he's been in power. I think this is an important part of the narrative, especially for people in the West that have freedom of speech, that have free press. We have platforms. We need to be talking about the contrast here. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a more productive thing. Of course, we can highlight the bad, but show like, look how much freedom there's been. Look at the innovation. Look at the economic explosion. Places like the Baltic states. Look at how Poland is now leading the way of the European alliance against Russia and Ukraine. Why don't we highlight that stuff? Because that's just as important as the bad stuff. I think because where we are in fighting the culture wars, which is a noble fight, I will definitely say that. And I think there are important ones that are to be made and had there. But unfortunately, when you apply American culture wars to foreign policy in some respects, you lose sight of the essence of what is at stake here, what freedom means, what you know, having uh, allied relationships entails. And I've noticed a little bit on Twitter, I don't think so much in real life, but I'm a little worried about our compatriots on the right who are tweeting certain things saying that Russia is this noble Thing. We can't anger Russia. We can't provoke Russia uh, because they have shared values and identities with us. And I, I want to remind your listeners that Russia was actually the first country uh, to put Marxism into practice, realistically speaking, and, and, and with very bloody consequences. And Putin is not really much of a departure from his Soviet predecessors much. He was KGB and KGB is a relic from the Soviet times and KVD, KGB things of that sort. So he was groomed and ingrained in that philosophy. He's not changed. He's not different from what he was when it was the Soviet era in Russia. Now with modern Russia, which is maybe a little more free, but it's not improved. It's, it's not where Russia could be. You have these inclinations to neo-Soviet times. Like if I wrote one of my first breakout pieces for townhall.com when I started doing commentary writing on a bigger scale was that Russia still was hearkening back to the past. It was 2013. It was, I think, on the 50th anniversary of Stalin's death. And there was polling conducted among the Russian populace. And take it for what you will, a lot of it is very warped and contorted. But a lot of the Russian populace were very, I would say, wish casting for Stalin. They missed him. They said he was a positive figure who had positive contributions. And Putin was similarly viewed in the same vein as Stalin. And I know this, as you very well know, and some of your listeners know, because I am of Lithuanian descent. And it's not about me, and it's not about my being Lithuanian, but being a child of immigrants, uh, political refugees who fled the Soviet Union to come to this country. 
my parents instilled an understanding of the Kremlin. And this is not to say you conflate the Kremlin with all Russian people. I think that's a big mistake. Some people do that. Uh, but unfortunately, much of the Russian populace has not challenged Putin. And a lot of them do agree, unfortunately, with his atrocities. But you you take it from a Baltic perspective or an American perspective by way of like one generation or so from the Baltic states. Lithuania was the first of 15 nations to break away from the Soviet Union. Poland was similarly controlled by the Soviet Union, but they had their own separate dictator premier in charge, but they were not formally part of the 15 countries. Um, Ukraine was part of the 15 occupied bloc that comprised the official Soviet Union, but Poland and Czech Republic and other countries were heavily influenced by the Soviet Union. So a, a clear distinction to make there, but all of them were under the sphere of influence of the USSR. But the Baltics, just because it's in their nature, they did not like being dual, uh, facing dual occupation during both, first they had Soviet, then it went back to, then it went to Nazi occupation, then 50 plus years, nearly 50 plus years of Soviet occupation again. So the Baltic countries haven't really been understood and I think the West turned a blind eye here in the States. We turned a blind eye to their plight. They were, my parents always said they were promised, you know, help from America and America did help a little bit, but they made a lot of concessions to the USSR. And that's a whole nother uh, <laughs> journey to go down to, or a rabbit hole to go down on. But the Baltics are an example of what happens when countries have the aptitude and the fortitude to be independent and to really make success for themselves. The Baltics, not only Lithuania, Lithuania's in my view, I, I I like where it is right now. I don't agree with some of the leadership at times. I may be questioning, you know, their foray into the EU. I think the EU does hamstring them. The Baltics are largely prosperous because they were able to break away. They joined NATO. They are very prosperous. Estonia, I would say even a little bit more technologically speaking, they have Skype, which is a popular mode of communication. People use to record interviews and to host calls. And, and they are just a case study of what happens when you have free markets reintroduced, them being for free markets, them being very anti-communist. Lithuania is one of the most outspoken countries against the CCP and also the Kremlin. Very few countries are very boldly taking stances against the CCP like Lithuania is. They even have jeopardized some of their standing in Europe because they are supporting Taiwan as well. They're not adhering to the one China policy. So that kind of snapshot overview points to the fact that when countries are able to detangle themselves from Russia, on their own volition, which is what Lithuania wanted for the longest time. Same with Estonia and Latvia and Poland and other countries that were influenced by the USSR as well. They can be prosperous and they can be a clarion call, not only to the United States, but also to their Western European neighbors about what not to do. Now you see friction between Germany, France and other Western, Western European countries and Eastern European countries about taking moral stances against the CCP, uh, divesting from Russian dependent or dependence on Russian oil and gas. And so we should look to the Baltics as an example. We should align ourselves with them better and similarly adopt that view with Ukraine. Ukraine is not a perfect country. It does have corruption. Russia was able to kind of deceive Ukrainians and say, we're brothers in arms. We're very similar. We like the same food. We kind of talk in similar dialects and languages. But Ukrainians and Russians are totally different people. They're different ethnicities. They have different languages. And Ukraine is a lot older than Russia if we look at establishment and historical uh, evidence of that. So they're two distinct countries. They do sound very similar to the outsider, but they need to be viewed in distinct lenses. And we can criticize the government. I'm worried about funding going to Ukraine being used properly. I think that's a concern for everyone. And I think 
with respect to Ukraine, people don't want to see war break out. No one, to my knowledge, is calling for American boots on the ground. We were like, Ukraine, this is your battle. We're going to give you guys weapons. We're going to give you guys supplies. We want you to fight. We want you to win. I think that's a good middle ground position without going into full-scale war. But that's kind of an overview of Eastern Europe, kind of from my own understanding of it, talking to people, still having family there. And with respect to the NATO question, if we didn't have NATO, I think, like I said, I think NATO is less controversial than the EU. They're not steeped so much into politics like the EU is, unfortunately. But NATO, if Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia were not in NATO currently, I would have relatives who would be displaced persons right now. <laughs> so that goes to show the strength of NATO, however imperfect of an institution it is. Yeah, I'm about to up to my neck to Ukraine's skirt was too short arguments on, you know, excusing Russia, but that's just me. Gabriella Hoffman joining us. Something you just touched on in there that's really important, though, is the perceptions of these things. We just had a poll out. 73% of Americans in this poll still believe the U.S. Cont should continue to support Ukraine despite the threats of nuclear weapon. This is one of those Twitter ain't real life pundits aren't yes. all the way connected things sometimes. Friend of mine that I follow on Twitter, Lauren Crow, had a really interesting point on this. He said, interesting that, I'm quoting him here, 30 years after the end of the Cold War, America still seems to intuit, just intuitively know, the optimal response to nuclear threats. I'd bet this has more to do with many Americans' firsthand experience and distaste with bullying than with our shared understanding of some game theory. But hey, I think he's really on to something here because most people are not ate up on geopolitics. Most people don't even understand things. Most people probably couldn't pick out the Baltic countries on a map or a list no. or anything else. <laughs> They inherently don't like bullies in America. They know right. when a country invades another country or leans on another country. There's just something inherently American where we don't like mm -hmm. that. We overtalk these things in principles and geopolitics. I think he's onto something there on why the base level American is going to support Ukraine over Vladimir Putin 10 out of 10 times usually. Absolutely. And your friend is correct in that respect because I think the Cold War is still very fresh in a lot of people's minds, even people around our age. I'm in my early 30s. And for me, I am a descendant of people who escaped that system. And my grandparents had it really, really bad. Uh, they were in various labor camps. My grandpa on my mom's side survived 18 months in a Russian gulag on the Finnish-Russian border. So those horrors are very raw to me. I understand what Russia is capable of, even though I don't hold a foreign policy credential I'm just very attuned to these issues. I have friends in Eastern Europe. I have friends who deal very deeply in these issues as well. I have one, one of my friends is making the maps that everyone sees from the Institute for the Study of War. My friend George Barros is responsible for putting out those maps. And I lean on him and others who are fully vested in this issue to get information to extrapolate. And I have a lot of Ukrainian friends. It's a personal thing. You talk to Ukrainians who came here because they either grew up in the last vestiges of, they escaped the last vestiges of the Soviet Union, their parents, their grandparents remember what happened in Ukraine with Russian occupation, with Golodomor, which is one of the worst genocides ever that people, especially in Russia, continue to downplay. And I think it goes back to your friend's point. And it's really interesting to me, kind of separate, but it, 
similarly related. I see a lot of people who call themselves conservative and anti-communist, yet they're rooting for Russia over Ukraine. And that principally strikes me as inconsistent. How can you say you're anti-Marxist and you're championing or you're kind of leaning with or, or you're, you're siding with Russia over Ukraine, not or being ignorant of history about what Russia did to Ukraine, the, the Marxist policies that were imposed there, the genocide, the famine, uh, the, the various uh, imprisonments and, and stint and victim victimization of individual Ukrainians. It is true that people, even with the influence of Twitter, and I think a lot of people, like I said, they're steeped into culture wars and they're applying what's happening here to the conversation in Ukraine. And they're, I think they're mistaken to do that because this is a totally different issue. And it doesn't mean that uh, you can't care about what happens domestically and not care about what happens abroad. I think some people on the right are falling into the trap that you only can care about one subset of issues or one issue. And we're not made, we're not structured like that as human beings and as political commentators. We can focus on many things. We can address many issues to limit ourselves and to stand idly by and be quiet when Russia is doing this, just like I said, even from a moral standpoint, it is a lot of cognitive dissonance online, but I am encouraged by polls. I am encouraged by people outside of Twitter because I think Twitter, again, it does lean far to the left, but when it comes to certain elements on the right, Twitter is not a full representation of what Republicans or center-right folks are thinking. You talk to most people and they say, yeah, I do support Ukraine's plight. Is it entirely perfect? No, but I know who's the enemy here. I know who should win here. And we want to see freedom prevail over tyranny. Going back to Ukraine's plight, historically speaking. Now let me see you go off like a bomb. Gabrielle Hoffman joining us. I think that's an important thing to take away from this when we deal with Vladimir Putin for this reason. He chose to do this. And I think especially in the West, because we have this real level of, look, if you get a right and talk for a living, you're pretty privileged. Let's just be honest about this. The commentary in the news media in the West, especially in America, we lose perspective on these things really quick that, hey, sometimes in history, frequently, you just get a really bad actor that is impervious to logic and reason, and you've got to deal with them because they're going to push until they make you deal with them. And I think too much of this, we try to put our Western spin on it and don't realize, like, for whatever reason, Vladimir Putin did this. He was trying to get a national unification moment. He really does want to put together, not that even the Soviet, the old imperial Russian empire, yeah. what he's really looking to do. His, he's got age. Uh, there's all kinds of rumors about his health situation. Mm -hmm. Whatever triggered this in his mind to make this logically horrible decision, because everybody knew that, like, look, even if you take it, you can't hold it. I don't think we do a really good job in Western punditry and commentary of just acknowledging, like, there's bad faith actors. Peace is the exception. War is the norm historically. And we should prepare ourselves for that thing. I think we're a little spoiled and it shows when we go to deal with things like Vladimir Putin and the really bad actors in the world. Absolutely. And I think people underestimate his influence. People say, well, China's the bigger threat than Russia. And that may be true. I don't deny that. I think China is a huge threat. But people forget that the Kremlin and the CCP are very in sync. They're very much aligned. They have the same goals. And 
it was because of Soviet Russia that there was a Mao Zedong, that there was the Great Leap Forward. People, again, not knowing history can be your downfall as a commentator. You should have some depth and perception and not look at like a very small time frame. You need to look big picture. We see this kind of small, isolated, big picture analysis or small picture analysis concentrated not only on foreign policy, you see it on environmental issues. People look at a small scope and then they make their assumptions and their claims through that without looking at the big picture. When you look at the big picture, you could see that Russia has been agitating a lot of the world's adversaries. They've been involved. They've shared ideas. They've trained militarily. They've uh, signed memorandums of understanding. They've, they've worked in sync. Russia and China have worked in sync. And we haven't pushed away Russia to fall into the arms of China. They've been working behind the scenes for a very long time. And you can view both of those as threats. Uh, one may be more immediate. The other may be uh, more, ex you know, more kind of in the periphery, in the background. But you can view, like I said, you can deem problematic. You can, you can deem uh, different um, adversaries as problematic and, and assess what threats they pose. And so that, that's kind of short-sighted to say like, well, China's our only threat, but Russia is not. But it's like, well, there wouldn't be a China, like a Marxist China, CCP, without the Soviet Union. People don't know that or they fail to remember that. And I think that's really important to hone in on. And I, and I would hope people do that. But you can, I've tried to reason with certain people, especially on the right, who are like, oh, no, no, we're just going to do like through this lens. Like if you support Ukraine, you're a Bidenite. And like, I disagree with Biden wholeheartedly. I don't support much of his policies, but that doesn't make me supportive of the president. It's just, I have, I cared about Ukraine long before this, this war broke out. And I do get a little peeved by some insincerity of people who do display Ukrainian flags without knowing the context behind it or knowing what the country was before this year. I don't like the virtue signaling on that end either. But I think people have to learn history if you want to be consistently anti-Marxist, you need to see what Russia did to Ukraine through much of the 20th century. And I would hope that the dialogue does improve, but it doesn't help when we have certain media personalities kind of giving a nod to Russian propaganda at times and, and people just parroting that and saying that if you in any way support Ukraine, that makes you complicit with elites and globalism. It's like, well, I'm questioning of elites. Like, why are you, why are you placing this? So again, we kind of have a myopic view of foreign policy and I think people have this notion of, I was just reading a book um, about um, how social media has kind of made history as a profession, um, kind of um, put it, put the profession into question because now everyone does something like, or people lean more so on e-history. So they make their own version of history and the, the professionals and those closest to uh, the occupation are not news making much on it. You have other people who are kind of diluting history or, uh, making it as their own. And so we need to be cautious about ignoring history, creating a narrative for bite-sized digestible consumption, and really distorting where public opinion is on this matter. Again, taking out the war equation. Like I said, I don't think many people want to go into war, um, given all the problems we have here at home, but we can still morally and militarily support Ukraine without having boots on the ground. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman joining us. There's that old saying in uh journalism about journalism supposed to be the first draft of history. I think that's kind of gone by the wayside and it touches on what you're talking about. Uh, put your conservation hat on for just a second. You were writing about lead bans. Uh, yes. Let's go to some domestic policy real quick. 
lead in water is a massive problem. We know all the history mm -hmm. on that. We've seen what's happened in municipalities. We've seen it in places like Flint. We've seen other water problems like what's going on in Jackson, Mississippi, which is mostly government incompetence, but we'll hash that out later. The lead ban you're talking about is not directly what we're talking about, like lead in, in water or lead right. in paint that kids can get into or right. asbestos or lead in home things. This is a different thing, but it's got the word lead in it. So people kind of freaked out a little bit. Mm -hmm. You kind of turned the noise down on this. You got to the basics of it, and you think this is maybe one of those things where <laughs> nomenclature really, really mattered and the way they wrote this in black and white's having some major unintended consequences. Right, all the while ignoring the science. So a lot of environmentalists love to conflate pure lead, the toxic lead like you mentioned, that is found in traces of flint water in Michigan and elsewhere and in lead paint. These are lead fragments. These are very minuscule in the stream of things and you're not consuming these lead fragments when you're hunting or fishing uh when, with respect to hunting as you very well know and many of your listeners probably will know when you're hunting you are largely dealing with a small amount of lead and when you're field dressing and processing your meat your deer whatever you are taking out those lead fragments to make sure that it doesn't take your meat and if you get it out within a few hours you'll be fine if you let it stay there for days upon end that may be a whole different story, but hunters are responsible enough to not leave lead in their animal. And I think we can leave it to hunters and anglers to be responsible about their lead usage without government policing their behavior. And what I meant with saying there's a denial of science with respect to lead, I've written extensively about this at Real Clear Policy and also at townhall.com, examining do lead components pose as much of a threat as like consuming pure lead? And I was e able to debunk that very easily because the CDC itself said in its most recent scholarship on this issue, when you account for, let's say, um, I think it's uh, blood levels with respect to lead components or containments of lead in, in blood, blood levels. And they, they assessed, you know, uh, blood levels with lead fragments in deer versus uh, no lead fragments in deer. And it was like a statistical null conclusion. It was like maybe a 0 0.03 or Point three difference, very, very minuscule. It was statistically insignificant in the grand scheme of things. So their own government agencies have proven that lead fragments, when handled, not consumed, don't pose a threat. And there hasn't really been much of studies. They've, they've pointed to the condor, they've pointed to endangered birds and in, ingesting it, but that's very limited. And the condor has now gotten, I would say, restored to its, its glory. It, it's, it's recovered, it's recovering, it's not endangered anymore, and they're making a comeback. Uh, because people are more careful about what they use in the field. And also, um, not just about hunters and, and anglers using lead components, it's also, you know, what other threats are posed to endangered birds too. We have uh, renewable energy that also could be a threat to endangered birds as well. Um, but they're not painting the full picture. They're trying to paint an emotional story, isolating it to, well, you're going to hurt the plight of this condor, you're going to hurt the plight of eagles if you continue to use lead. And the Biden administration leaned on a complaint from a special interest group, an environmental organization called the Center for Biological Diversity. They're always suing the government to displace conservation stakeholders from the table. And what they did here is they said, well, you cannot open up 2 million acres to new hunting and fishing opportunities because lead components, in their view, pure lead, but it's actually lead components, pose the greatest threat to endangered species, to grizzly bears, to snakes, to whatever. And like I said, with, with the findings of blood levels, and 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 the conclusions of it there there is no impact thus far the fishing and hunting interests i've spoken to i've spoken to trade representatives from the hunting side and also the fishing side and they have said 
unless we're presented new material pointing to the fact that lead usage in fishing and tackle or bullets or ammunition is found to be disproportionately bad, we will reassess and we will stop using this. But they said right now there's no evidence pointing to that. And what it's done, what's done here is rather to incrementally impose bans on hunting and fishing. This is what environmentalists want to do. It sounds very sinister, but having followed their machinations for quite a bit of time, they find these little baby step moves to get the public on their side gradually or to force public behavior to change when it comes to consuming different activities or certain components. So when you eliminate lead tackle and bullets, what is shown to happen in California, no less, of course, California adopted a full ban. Initial findings that or initial studies that went into this prohibition of ban uh, lead tackle and bullets, they estimated that several uh, thousand people would be displaced from the outdoor industry. It would lead to potentially 36 to 40 percent of hunters and anglers not going hunting and fishing because they would be priced out of the activities. And then it ultimately led to a shortage of conservation funding. It has a ripple effect down the, the chain of command. You know, when people stop buying goods, it impacts livelihoods. It leads to fewer conservation dollars being generated, and then it leads to fewer people going outdoors. So people see these restrictions, incremental restrictions, as impeding on your lifestyle. And when you do something like this, and the administration in this case went through with it with their new proposal to open 18 new public lands on National Wildlife Refuges under the Fish and Wildlife Service, that gives the administration permission to potentially ban other forms of hunting, maybe not the accessories. Maybe they will say, okay, no grizzly bear management, or okay, no black bear management, even though the science says you have to manage those species, no matter how cuddly or cute they are. So this, this invites incremental abridgments to your ability to hunt and fish. Um, it's not enshrined in the U.S. Constitution, but different state constitutions have right to hunt and fish amendments enshrined in their respective chambers. And so people see this as an attack on their livelihoods, as an attack on these activities. And if you claim to be for public lands access, you shouldn't be making it harder, economically speaking, for people, especially newbies and newbies who are not your traditional hunters and anglers, mostly black Americans, Hispanic Americans, women, children, young people, people who have never once picked up a rod or picked up a hunting rifle. They're the ones who are going to be displaced by this. And that's so counterintuitive. And it's very much against the public lands ethos that we have here. Yeah, Gabriella Hoffman. Okay, here's a usage of lead that was damaging, but not in the way you normally think of it as. So we got, this went viral. These two yahoos up in Ohio yes. <laughs> uh, that got caught cheating. And the reason the lead comes into it is they were using, these are, these are called egg, egg sinkers um, for people that don't hunt and fish. It, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's just an egg-shaped chunk of lead that you put on a fishing. We use them for tout lining where you want the bait to sit down at the bottom of the lake they use lead sinkers and fish fillets and they were stuffing their fish and cheating. When you found out how these guys got caught though, I love this so much. The suspicions actually arose because number one, these were two guys that went on a hot streak winning, but they were only doing local tournaments. That was number one. But number two is, and the tournament director that caught him said, and this is the quote he said, we thought it was odd. They wanted to take their five fish and go home and not donate it to the helping hands of St. Louis. What they were doing was all the heavy fish, they were donating it to this food charity, right? Because mm -hmm. they're not cutting these up. They cut these ones up because they were cheating. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to take their fish and go home. They actually got caught by the charity aspect of this, plus the fact they were greedy and kept doing it. And they've everybody caught on and they got caught, but not the way you normally see lead. But I know you're a big hunter and fisherman. You like fishing. This is kind of humorous in one way. There's a lot of money involved in these things, by the mm -hmm. way. So it is fraud and the police are now involved. I'm sure there'll be charges. But 
I just want your opinion on it because I know you like the fish about these two yahoos and their lead weight. I thought the fish fillets inside the fish was at least creative. I'd never seen that one before, but what do you think of these guys? Before we went on the air, we were talking about the phenomenon of cheating creeping into all these different sports. You look at football, baseball, what have you. Now it's creeping into fishing, which is supposed to be this wholesome activity. You don't think tournament fishing is plagued by all these cheating scandals. Now we can say they have been. And it calls into question, do other people have these practices too? And, and with these two individuals in particular, I suspect they were probably doing nefarious tactics beforehand, uh, maybe in the most recent uh, year, because how else would you prime yourself for winning so much money? So maybe there are previous records and wins will be called into question too. And it's humorous. I love the memes that are coming out of it. Like you could take some levity from this really bad situation and be like, see, everyone's in agreement that these guys are yahoos that they should lose their fishing privileges. Some people are like, well, it's too harsh to say they should lose their fishing privileges. But when you violate you know, the basic standards and, and the conditions you agree to that you would be ethical, you would harvest the fish reasonably, you would, in the case that you mentioned, donate the proceeds or donate your earnings or rather donate the fish that you harvested to a local charity. When you violate all those different principles, I think you should face a stiff penalty. It's much like with poaching and hunting. If you violate the rules, ethics you you take more than your lot you're hunting out of season you're hunting illegally you need to be made an example of because then it's, it's saying if you get a lenient punishment then it's saying okay your behavior really wasn't that problematic we'll let you off the hook you could do this again so i think these individuals need to i don't know about a permanent ban i think they should have let's say a, a quasi permanent ban maybe they can uh try to work towards good behavior and restore you know trust within the public but I think they need to face a little bit of a penalty. They need at least five years, 10 years, no tournament fishing, maybe a permanent ban on, on tournament fishing, but a temporary penalty on their fishing licenses too, because what poaching may be, what, or what unethical behavior may they be engaged in if they're recreationally fishing? That should call into question. Maybe they're doing some really shady behavior when they're not competing in tournaments too. So I think a, a penalty needs to be had. They need to be made an example of because it'll further create discord. I was talking to uh, even female tournament anglers who said this behavior is not isolated. Sometimes this does happen even more than what's being reported. And it doesn't make and, and boost morale uh, with respect to, to fishing's integrity. And so the memes are great. I think these anglers need to be made an example of have no proximity to tournament angling, pay restitution, pay fines, and to really see the error of their ways and, and to beg for forgiveness because conservation, it's a fish, our, our fish, the wild animals that we pursue, they're a public good. They're meant for us, you know, they're, they're available for us to steward, to enjoy, to harvest in regulated means, not to cheat the system when you're competing in tournaments, not to uh, bloviate, not to obviously in, inflate certain things and conditions. You have to go according to ethics because People will take these examples. I could envision animal rights advocates saying, and any, you know, believe it or not, PETA does go after fishing too. They they hate people eating crabs. They have a really uh, fine hatred of Maryland crab eating. They hate hunters. Absolutely. They also dislike recreational fishing and they say that fish have feelings. Therefore, we shouldn't fish. And so they could use this opportunity and say, see, look what they're doing. They're hurting the fish. They're stuffing it with dangerous toxic lead and they're also stuffing it with fish fillets. So we need to ban tournament fishing. This gives opportunists in environmental interests to seize upon these incidents and to further restrict people. So we need to be careful about how we present ourselves 
exhibit ethical behavior. If you're catching and releasing, showing the release, acknowledging you released, not showing gory pictures, not cheating, uh, because we have a responsibility to be good examples for these activities, even on a recreational basis. I don't tournament fish, but I, I know a little of the dynamics, but you can apply it consistently recreationally and, and tournament fishing. But um, people have good impressions of these activities. And we need to keep that because the livelihoods are under assault all the time, and this could be used to hurt us. So that's what I think the takeaway from this walleye cheating situation is. I hope your listeners agree with that too. <laughs> yeah, Gabrielle Hoffman, I'm going to disagree with you on one thing. People have been lying and cheating about fishing since the first pole went in the water. Right. I'll prove it to you right now. How big was that last fish you caught? That was 45 inches. This big, you know, and you do. Gabriella Hoffman. <laughs> yeah, you measure it. Uh, Gabriella Hoffman, outstanding stuff. Uh, you've been all over the place. We're going to link to the piece. Uh, the lead band piece was in IWF. We'll link to that. We'll also link to the rest of her work because you're all over the place. You're writing a lot. You're talking a lot till we get you back on her till next time. Let folks know where they can keep up with all that crazy stuff you're doing, even though you're going to be homebound for at least a week or two mm -hmm. now. Yes, I'm excited to stay put here in the Northern Virginia area. But if your listeners wish to connect with me and you've been very generous with teeing up my podcast, I really appreciate that. Listen to District of Conservation. We have phenomenal guests coming on the pipeline. I've been interviewing a lot of newsmakers. We'll be interviewing a lot of, I think, Virginia department heads. I'm going to talk to our conservation officer and maybe our agriculture cabinet member uh, in the coming months, hopefully some national newsmakers soon. But I'm even talking to people in the field who are not really well known, but have something interesting to say. So District of Conservation on all podcasts played. I'm on social media, easily denoted by blue check marks. You can follow my musings at Young Voices, where Andrew and I have first linked up. Uh, a while ago, but we're both part of the Young Voices Contributor Program. If you're in the Northeast and Mid-Atlantic, we are actively recruiting new contributors for our program. So talk to me if you have an interest in wanting to elevate your commentary or commenting career, media career. We would love to, uh, in uh, we would love to have your application come through, and and we would love to welcome your interest to the program as well. I'm also actively writing at Townhall.com. I'm a senior fellow with Independent Women's Forum. I have lots of other writings. I have a YouTube channel where I do post my interviews, but I also post like fun travels that I do to national parks, public lands, fishing, hunting, things of that sort. I have a hunting trip coming up, I'm going to be hunting largely with a exclusive group of females in Georgia sometime really soon. So I'm going to highlight that. I'm going to be reviewing some new boots that I received uh, from Irish Setter. So I have some cool stuff. I have like a mix of like political commentary, um, video overviews, and then also product reviews sometime relating to hunting and fishing. So I hope you all connect with me and thank you for hearing me on the program today. Yeah, we uh, actually advertise it because it's that good of a program. Gabriella Hoffman, you're great. See you again soon, my friend. Thanks for the time. Thank you, Andrew. Lovely chatting with you. Thank you, ma'am. Now let me see you go like a bomb. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Ah, welcome back to Hertel. Okay, if you have a painting that may be worth as much as $100 million, you think you keep track of it. Well, this one's been lost for the better part of 40 years. 
Now they got it. Uh, this is from Newser.com. After a William D. Koning painting worth millions was brazenly stolen in 1985 from an Arizona museum, the staff clung to the hope that it would turn up one day, but nobody could have predicted Woman O'Cray, and I'm probably mispronouncing that because my Dutch ain't that good, but just work with me here, folks, would find its way back through the kindness of strangers in the neighboring state. Now back home, the AP reports that the 1955 oil painting will be the centerpiece of an entire exhibition opening October 8th at the University of Arizona. The whole ordeal of the theft and the painting's return in 2017 via New Mexico will be chronicled in the show. The work has spent the last two years at the Getty Museum in Los Angeles for restoration work and display. The painting will soon be in the same spot it was stolen from, but under a case this time. Almost like something out of a heist movie, the theft unfolded the morning after Thanksgiving. A woman distracted the security guard with small talk while the man who was with her went to the upstairs gallery, cut the painting right out of the frame, and left with the painting rolled up. There was no security camera system and there were no leads. A break in the case came in 2017 when David Van Ocker bought the painting at an estate sale in Cliff, New Mexico. It's co-owner of Manzanita Ridge, a furniture and antique store 40 miles away in Silver City. And once displayed to the store, three different customers remarked how it looked like a real deconing. His interest peaked. He did a Google search, which led him to a 2015 article about the theft. And he immediately attempted to contact the University of Arizona, even the FBI, but nobody got back to him. He said, I sat up all night with three guns and a painting behind a sofa. He said, I thought somebody would end up coming and killing us for this painting. He even left a voicemail for the curator, Olivia Miller, making it clear that he was not interested in reward. Just come get the thing. Miller and a conservator with the university made a three-hour drive down from Tucson to Silver City the next day. They found there was enough indications to take the painting back for verification. A conservator deemed it the real deconing. In return, triggered... An FBI probe, but the case is now considered closed following a thorough investigation. The estate the painting came to belong to was Jerry and Rita Alter. The artwork had been hanging behind a bedroom door for years. Relatives also discovered a photo that showed the couple had been in Tucson on Thanksgiving Day in 85. Jerry Adler died in 2012 and his wife in 2017. The authorities never publicly called them suspects. So they stole a $100 million painting, hung it on the back of their bedroom door, and there it sat. What a story. That'll do it for her tell. Uh, unlike the painting, you can find us easily. All the podcasting platforms, uh, iTunes, Spotify, iHeartRadio. Make sure you subscribe, please. Make sure you share us. Leave a comment and a rating if it gives you an option to do so. It's really important for us. It only takes a minute of your time. If you'd share us on your social media, we'd sure appreciate it. Also, the YouTube channel is going strong. Lots of good stuff on there, including our latest Heard Tell podcast, long-form deep dive on the blonde movie, Marilyn Monroe, Exploitation with the great Dolly Marlowe. Make sure you check that out. So until we see you again on whatever way you're watching or listening to Heard Tell, wherever you are across the street or around the world, we hope you're well. We hope you are well-fed. We'll talk to you again next time for more Heard Tell. All the music on Hertel is provided under a creative content license from MonsterCat.com.